0: Uh, in the house. Good to have all of you back in the house of the Lord. It's always good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, So why don't we open up with prayer, and then we'll open up God's word and see what he has for us this morning. Lord God, we just thank you. What a privilege it is, Lord God, um, to be in your house. Uh, Thank you, Lord God, for um, your goodness that brings us here, Lord God. Thank you that uh, Jesus was not left in the grave and that as his body rose, Lord God, he did break every chain, that we might be freed from the bond of sin, that we might be freed from the shame and the guilt that goes along with that. Uh, Father, we pray that as we study your word right now, that you would speak to our hearts and teach us, what you have for each and every one of us. Uh, We pray your Holy Spirit, Lord God, to work in this room, um, to lift up Jesus high, uh, that he may be known uh, by all of us as he knows us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, So we are continuing our march through the book of Mark, and uh, we are in the section that is following Jesus' march to the cross. Um, You know, uh, Karl Barth was a theologian, a Swiss theologian, from the 19th, late 19th into the early 20th century, and he's quoted as saying, I have read many books, but the Bible reads me. Um, And the Bible does seem to have this power to unearth and reveal things even to ourselves that we may not want to see and often our deepest truths and realities. And uh, there's no section of scripture that does that more than the section we're in right now as we see Jesus marching to the cross. And what we see in that is the contrast of man at his worst and God at his greatest. In every verse that we read, until ultimately we get to the apex of that, which is Jesus at the cross. And last week, Rob showed us God's faithfulness in the face of man's faithlessness, as all of his friends would abandon him uh, as he was arrested. And this week, we're gonna see that escalated and taken to the next level, because we're gonna go from just abandoning Jesus to watching Jesus be betrayed. Uh, He's gonna be betrayed by his nation, and he's gonna be betrayed even by his friends. And here's the cruel reality of betrayal, is that when we betray others, we betray ourselves first before we ever get to the point of betraying others. And that's true with God. Um, Sin is ultimately a betrayal of God. It's a betrayal of what God uh, intends for us, expected of us. Um, It's a betrayal of God's laws and rules. Uh, But the reality is in doing so, we betray ourselves. And St. Paul says this in Romans 7.15. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. That is the nature of sin, that uh, we do those things that are even hateful to ourselves, but sin so enslaves us that we end up doing some of those things. And it's easy to look at the Jews. It's easy to look at the Romans at this point. It's easy to point at them and say, they killed Jesus. But we all know that that would only be half the story. And uh, this is really captured in a hymn that I love. It's actually a modern-day hymn. Call How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And this verse says this. It says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that helped him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And the question for us this morning as we read through this and as we see the betrayal uh, that Jesus experiences, do we see ourselves as part of that mocking crowd? Do we understand our betrayal of God? Do we understand how in betraying God we have betrayed ourselves? Do we see ourselves as part of the crew literally nailing Jesus to the cross because of our sins? Because today's scripture should paint a picture for all of us You know, again, we're going to find a a powerful contrast here between the light of God and the darkness of man's heart. And the question is, do we see the darkness of our own heart? Because between the betrayal of Jesus by his nation and the betrayal of Jesus by his friends, uh, what we're going to find is Jesus standing and declaring the truth, the truth that's going to lead to his death, which ultimately leads to our lives. And we're going to be reminded That it is in his condemnation that we find hope. And what will separate those who find hope, and what separates a believer from an unbeliever, the only thing that separates the two is what we're going to see in Peter. Because everyone in this scripture is going to betray God and honestly themselves. But what the difference is going to be is a question of repentance repentance and acceptance of Jesus' confession that leads to the road of salvation or a rejection of Jesus by hardened hearts that ultimately is going to lead to destruction. So with that, let's read Mark fourteen fifty three to 72, and then we'll study it a bit. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, and he made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you are also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither knew nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself, and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down, and he wept. You know, this section of scripture begins um, with evidence that there are no successful conspiracies. Those who know me know that I just don't believe them when I hear them. I stopped believing in conspiracies after reading Charles Coulson. And for those of you who are too young to know who Charles Coulson was, um, Charles Coulson was the White House counsel during uh, Nixon's Watergate. And he went off to prison because of Watergate, um, and then ultimately, uh, in prison, he became a Christian. And after he became a Christian, he became a powerful evangelist and an advocate, especially for prisoner's rights and he founded a group called Prison Fellowship. But in his testimony, he often relayed that Watergate showed him that the Bible was true. And the reason he would say that, they say, well, how, what about Watergate tells you the Bible is true? And he quote, he says this. He says, here were the 10 most powerful men in the United States with all that power, and we couldn't contain a lie for two weeks. <laughs> he said, take it from someone who has, was involved in conspiracy, who saw the frailty of man firsthand. There is no way the 11 apostles who were with Jesus at the time of the resurrection could have ever gone around for 40 years proclaiming Jesus' resurrection unless it was true. (laughs) And I agree with Colson. And here is further proof to Colson's point, because let's read that the the high priest who had brought Jesus in for this trial, um, it says that they were unable to find two witnesses who would bear testimony against him. This is after reading in verse one that two days before the Passover, they were already planning to crucify Jesus. They've had at least three days, and we know more, and they can't drum up two witnesses (laughs) against Jesus? It's a testimony to, first of all, his truth and his faithfulness, but a testimony also to how these guys are basically bumbling through this plot (laughs) to put Jesus to death. And you have to wonder that if God had not ordained this, would they ever have been able to even condemn Jesus? And yet, because God has ordained it, and we're going to see because of the wickedness of their hearts, the Jewish leaders are going to be assured of one thing. They're going to get rid of Jesus one way or another. They're going to do whatever it takes to assure that Jesus is put to death. And the Bible tells us that the high priest had even prophesied this in John eleven fifty. That it was better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And of course, while this was a prophecy, the Bible tells us that this was really about the high priest and his cohorts who were more afraid of losing their position than anything else. You see, they were afraid that one of two things was going to happen either Jesus and all of his preaching was going to cause the Romans to come in and literally clamp down on all of them, or worse that the people were literally gonna make Jesus king and take away their position. So one way or another, they lose, and it's all because of this man, Jesus. And yet, they're still unable to find two testimonies to condemn him. And so out of frustration, the high priest goes directly to Jesus. He says, have you no answer? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer against the high priest. And so the high priest asked him again, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And that's when the high priest tears his garment, and they begin to strike Jesus. Now, this goes back to my earlier statement that sin is a betrayal of yourself. Because in order for the high priest to do this, in asking this question, the high priest, to get this confession, he's not just seeking to nail Jesus against Jewish law, He's doing more than that. And his question is very, very specific. And we won't cover everything that that the Jews did here. But in condemning Jesus, the Jews would have violated a significant amount of their laws. And worse than that, they would have violated their own principles. You see, under Jewish law, an accused person was required to have a defender. And Jesus here has no defenders. Under Jewish law, they are required to have at least two corroborating testimonies before they can condemn someone. And yet they're going to condemn Jesus on his own testimony without any corroborating evidence whatsoever. And they couldn't get any. And they're still going to condemn Jesus. Under Jewish law, it was not allowed to self-incriminate oneself. And so he never should have been asked, especially without a defender. And yet they violate that rule as well, in their own courtroom. Jewish law did not allow sentencing of a capital case in the same night that the prisoner was condemned. And yet, they're going to condemn Jesus immediately upon, and give him a sentence of death, immediately upon upon him being convicted. So in order to condemn Jesus, these Jewish leaders have basically thrown away their own rule book and betrayed the very laws by which they governed themselves. And even more important than that, in questioning Jesus, the high priest is not only going to violate the rules, he's going to violate an unbelievably important Jewish principle in that he is going to collaborate with the Romans in order to put Jesus to death. The Jews hated the Romans. They hated the fact that the Romans ruled over them. And it should have been unthinkable for them to be collaborating with their sworn enemy in order to portray another Jew. And yet that's exactly what they are going to do. In turning Jesus over. You see, the high priest was not careless in the question he asked Jesus. He didn't just ask Jesus, are you the son of the blessed one? Which, under Jewish law, would have been enough to condemn Jesus to death. That's blasphemy. Jesus is calling himself God. Now, it's blasphemy unless he's really God. But that's a different issue. But that's not what the high priest asked Jesus. What the high priest asked Jesus is, are you the Christ and the son of the blessed You see, this was very important because in declaring himself the Messiah, he was not only declaring himself God, but he was declaring himself to be in line of David's throne. And that is treason under Roman law. And that's what he needed to take Jesus to Pilate, is to have Jesus commit an act of treason. And so he's collaborating here to condemn Jesus in a way that's gonna make him punishable by death. And it's why Jesus ultimately is going to be condemned as what, King of the Jews, when he is crucified, and that is what the Roman, uh, what the Jewish leaders here are setting up. To the Romans, the claim of messiahship would have been a claim of treason, and Pilate would have been forced to act in order to put Jesus to death. And so we see that sin is an act of betrayal against God but also an act of betrayal against ourselves. For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. We've seen the betrayal of Jesus' enemies. Let's look at betrayal of Jesus' friend, beginning in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked and said, You are with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystander said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered Jesus' words. You know, nothing hurts more Uh, or destroys a friendship faster than an act of betrayal by someone we love. It's hard in all relationships. And yet, befitting our God, the God of love, we are told in the book of Luke that Jesus, knowing what was coming and knowing that Peter was going to betray him, was not angry. He was not hurt. He wasn't bitter. In fact, he prayed for Jesus. He prayed for Peter, exemplifying what we are taught, what he taught on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus is the one who taught, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do for Peter. In Luke 22, uh, verse 31, we read this. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. Now, that is a sermon in and of itself. I don't know what relationship Satan has with God that he gets to go in the presence of God and demand that he has Peter. But Satan obviously will use anything to try to condemn those of the people of God. He said that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And now Peter says to him, Lord, I am ready to go both with you to prison and to death. And that's when Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow until you deny me three times that you even know me. See, I believe Peter was extremely sincere in his willingness to die for Jesus. And Peter is going to die for Jesus one day. But at this moment, a moment when you can argue that Jesus needed Peter the most, a simple friend to stand with him, Peter's not going to stand with him. As Jesus undergoes his greatest trial, Peter fails himself. And as we've been discussing This is not just a betrayal of Jesus, it's a betrayal of Peter's own promise to himself. It's a betrayal of all that Peter thinks of himself. You see, Peter is not the brave soldier prepared to stand and die with Jesus that he thinks he is. He's not the pure Israelite that he sees himself as, who is defending his Messiah. He's not the friend who promised Jesus that even if all these others abandon you, Lord, I won't do it. He's not who he thinks he is. Sin is an absolute offense against God, but it will also always be a betrayal of ourselves as well as the God who created us because God created us to live in accord with his truth. And so much of the shame and the guilt that we feel and experience when we sin is because we know and we hate what we become when we are living in that state of sin. Just as Paul told us, us. And so amidst these two acts of betrayal, one by his enemy, the other by his friends, let's take a look at Jesus. Because Jesus, in the face of all this, is going to stand singular in his purpose, faithful to his Father, true to himself, and unbelievably, sacrificially thinking of all of us, and prepared to go to die for the punishment that we should bear. He's ultimately the living example of what God wants to make us to learn how to live truly as he does. Jesus, who has been silent, is going to be silent throughout the trial, but he's going to speak once, as we have read. He refuses to defend himself against any of the lies, so much so that the uh, high priest is shocked. See, Jesus knows that this is a show trial, and he's not going to waste his time trying to convince them against the lies that are being spewed against him. And so when he's asked to defend himself... We are told he made no answer, and he said not a word. But when he's asked who he is, we finally see Jesus speak. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Now, that alone would have been blasphemy. That's Jesus calling himself the name of God. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. Jesus finally answers, are you the Christ? You know, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. <laughs> and that's what we see here in this scripture, is that Jesus cannot deny himself. And thank God for that. You know, it's possible to read Jesus' words Uh, in answer to the high priest as a final act of defiance, that he's standing in the face of tyranny and proudly puffing up his chest and saying, I am. But see, I don't believe that. I don't believe that this was a prideful act of defiance in declaring who he is, because that's not who our Lord is, and that's not who our God is. He's humble and meek. And I believe with that same meekness, he answered the high priest. I believe Jesus, a condemned prisoner who knew he was going to be sentenced to death no matter what his answer was, I believe he is answering the high priest. I believe he is answering all that leadership and giving them one more chance to see him as he is, to repent and turn from their sin and honor and worship God as he deserves. Why would we expect anything less of the Lord? You know, Paul said that he becomes all things to all things that he might save some. And I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. And to those seeking power and glory, Jesus declares himself as he who has all power and all glory in order that they might contemplate that and turn from their sins. He says to them, look guys, you see me now and you see what I look like, but you want to see a Messiah of prestige? You're going to see him. And you're going to see him coming on the clouds of glory with all the power of heaven. He says, trust me, have faith in that and repent because if you don't repent, you're slated for destruction. This is our Lord Jesus throwing them a lifeline. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and here are the leaders of Israel, God's own chosen people, more lost than at any time they've ever been, standing before the very presence of God and not recognizing the God who is the God of their nation. And Jesus calls them to repentance. And Here they are betraying not themselves, but betraying their entire nation because of their petty desire to remain in control. But of course, they're not going to repent. Instead, their pride is gonna cause them to erupt at his declaration. And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him saying to him, prophesy, as the guards received him with blows. Now, of course, we have to look outside the scripture to see the day of destruction that came. But history records that that day came. Because 40 years after this, the Jews are going to rebel against the Romans. And the Romans are going to come in, and they're going to squelch this rebellion. And they're going to destroy the temple, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy, that not one stone of the temple would be left on another. You see, that is the result of sin. Full stop. Sin ultimately destroys that which we most love, care for, and most desire. That's what sin is going to do to every human being. In seeking to preserve their position, they ultimately not only lost their position, but they lose their entire nation by rejecting their Messiah. Now, God, in his mercy, gave them 40 more years to repent. And during those 40 years, we know that the gospel went throughout the nation of Israel into the, King, uh, into the empire of Rome, and it was spreading like wildfire. And the nation of Israel would still not repent. And so God ultimately brought destruction to the nation. And the Jews would be spread all over the world, throughout the world, and there would be no nation of Israel again for 1,900 years <laughs> because of this act of defiance as the Messiah stood before them. And ultimately, in fulfillment of another prophecy, in Isaiah 66, 8, we read this, which is just a powerful prophecy. He says, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. And I just throw this in here because it's a spectacular event that after the nation of Israel was destroyed and no one was in the land for 1,900 years, a nation was born in one day. (laughs) By declaration of the League of Nations, By approval uh, of the United Nations, and then in one day, the people of Israel stood up on May 14th, 1948, and literally just declared, This day, Israel became a nation in one day. But it didn't have to be that way. The land didn't have to be decimated for 1,900 years. That is what sin does. But Peter gives us a better course. Because Peter also betrayed our Lord. But Peter chooses a different path. You see, Peter remembered that Jesus had said and told him that you would deny me three times. And upon hearing the cock crow the third time, what did Peter do? We are told that he broke down and he wept. You see, that is a broken and repentant heart. That is someone who recognizes their betrayal of God their betrayal of themselves, and where it is leading to them. And in the face of betrayal, what will we choose? Will we remain defiant and watch our world crumble? Or will we choose to repent? Peter chose a path, and he found a different end, because after Jesus' resurrection, Peter is going to be restored, both to relationship with the Lord and ultimately He's going to be restored into the church to become a leader and a pillar of the church, a church that's going to grow exponentially and continue to grow even until this day. You see, Peter becomes the foundation of a mass movement that has had reverberations throughout history changed the face of the world and will have reverberations into eternity. And so when Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.10 that we should resist Satan firm in our faith, knowing that we share in the suffering of fellow believers, he goes on to say this. As we stand with the Lord and experience the suffering that comes with standing with the Lord, he says this in 5.10. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, Peter is talking from experience. (laughs) He has experienced the restoration that comes from a repentant heart. The Lord himself restores Peter. The Lord strengthens him. And the Lord established Peter as a firm foundation of this thing that we are part of today, the body of Christ. What will we choose? Here we are, also rebellious people. All of us have in some way betrayed our creator. All of us have in some way betrayed ourselves. We have all felt the weight of sin. We've all experienced the guilt and the shame that ultimately comes. We've all experienced the destruction in relationships that comes from sin. And the question is, what are we gonna do? You know, I believe Peter remembered all this because when Peter gives his first sermon in the book of Acts, what did he say? The Holy Spirit comes down and uh, they're speaking in tongues and he begins to preach and he gives them the history of Jesus And the Bible says this. He says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What did Peter say to them? Repent, (laughs) repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the call to repentance. And that's where we all need to come today. If you find yourself in cut to the heart because you know you've betrayed God, betrayed yourself, come before the throne of grace. We invite all of you to come. We're about to take communion. And as we do, um, before you do even, take that time for repentance. And even if you've been a Christian all your life, 40 years, whatever it might be, Maybe you've done something this week to betray God. Come before the Lord with repentance. And what is the promise that Peter gives us? That the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the promise today. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the promise of your word. Father, we are all sinners who come before a holy God. And yet, Lord God, your grace is overwhelming. Your grace is leading Jesus on a march towards the cross where he will ultimately pay for every sin we have committed, will commit, and might commit today. Father, in the face of betrayal, Jesus stood firm. Father, may we come humbly with repentant hearts before a faithful Jesus. May we accept his goodness that he offers us as we prepare to take communion. May we walk away from here confirmed, uh, reestablished, Lord God, and just resting in your faith and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.